Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3. I'd also direct you to the insert. It has the full range of passages that I will read to begin with, um, some verses from chapter 2 to give us context for chapter 3. I've read Genesis 3 probably as much as any uh, chapter in the whole of the Bible in my life, hundreds, maybe thousands of times. It's so foundational, but every time I read it, I'm never prepared uh, fully for where it goes. It's just such a heavy passage. It's such an informative passage. Um, why are things so messed up? Why is there so much sin and rebellion in the world? Why do so many deny God or shake their fist at Him? Why do people struggle as they do? Why do we struggle as we do? Why is there sickness, disease, suffering, misery? Why do the nations rage? Why is there injustice? Why do people act so selfishly? Why do people try to gain power over each other, force their will upon others? Who is the devil? And what is his legacy? What is the nature of our flesh? Why are we so sinfully prideful? And what does it mean for the world? Just a few questions that come to mind as you read through chapter 3 of Genesis. Our scripture reading can be found on your insert. I'll start by reading two verses from Genesis 2. These are the verses where God gives a, pro, a prohibition to Adam about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is what we call the covenant of works. If, if he upholds this, he lives. If he doesn't, he dies. And then Genesis 2.25 is actually the verse that is the bookend for the passage we're reading today. It really isn't a good chapter division. It is the precursor to the very first verse in chapter 3, as you will see. And I'll read down to verse 7 of chapter 3. That will be our scripture, and you'll understand why as I read and as we walk through this very foundational passage in the whole of the Bible. This is God's holy word, starting at Genesis 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, these verses are so foundational to our understanding of your righteous standard, our sin. 
in the state of the world for that matter. Please give us your Spirit's help so that we might pay close attention to your teaching. O Lord, may your word have its transforming impact upon us, your people. Lord, give me accuracy and clarity, and please give your people receptive hearts and understanding minds. I pray this for the glory of Christ, the second Adam, who is our blessed Savior. Amen. When we finished chapter 2, Adam and Eve were living in unparalleled splendor. As Kent Hughes put it, amidst the crystal waters and green forests of Eden, in delightful concert with each other and with the animals placed in the garden. Husband and wife in harmonious, complementary relationship. A sinless pair at the pinnacle of innocence and openness. Adam created first. Eve created from Adam to be his counterpart together as God uniquely gave them their roles and their purpose. Their joint assignment was to tend and keep the earth for God's glory, naked and unashamed. Now, this was true physically, but on a deeper level, it had to do with their total unashamed transparency relationally. There was nothing to protect or hide between them and God and between each other as husband and wife. And the Lord's provision sort of in a parental way, placing them sheltered but not smothered in the garden. On all sides, discoveries and encounters awaited them, as one commentator so put it. Ample nourishment for all they could take in by sight, what they could engage in physically, and the spiritual appetites as well, all there for them. Nevertheless, despite this setup, despite this blessed state of innocence. Mankind tragically fell. I always feel when I say tragically fell that these words are not nearly enough to hold all the weight of this tragedy. Humankind goes from this pinnacle of innocence and intimacy to the pit of guilt and estrangement. And we have experienced that guilt and estrangement ever since, in a compounding way even. John Milton wrote an epic poem called Paradise Lost. In book nine, he describes man's fall into sin. He says a lot more than I'm quoting, but just a few lines. Foul distrust and breach, disloyal on the part of man, revolt and disobedience. On the part of heaven, now alienated distance and distaste. Anger and rebuke and judgment given and brought into the world a world of woe. Sin and her shadow, death, and misery, death's harbinger. What caused all this that we suffer? Genesis 3 gives the foundation. It tells the story. It helps us rightly understand. And as Christians, maybe it's something we take for granted. But the world out there does not believe this. The world out there is blinded and thinking everything is really okay. It's just for us to make it better. But here we meet the truth. We meet the tempter and his temptation. We witness the fall of mankind and begin to see the ravaging effects of this fall as they start to unfold immediately. First, let's go to the passage, the first half of the first verse, and we are introduced 
to the tempter, who's actually, new in the text, an ancient foe. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Who is this foe, this ancient foe, as he turns out to be? Here we have, without question, Satan, the fallen angel of old, who in this case has entered a serpent, a snake. This isn't any old snake that's referred to. This is a Satan-filled snake. This is a precursed snake, part of the very good, now taken over by Satan. Now, we know this is Satan because other authors in Scripture alert us to this reality. In Ezekiel 28, the prophet is speaking um, in figurative terms of the nation of Tyre, alludes to the fall of Satan. and says in Ezekiel 28, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. This is a reference to Satan who was in the garden. Satan was a prideful, angelic being. So we have Satan here indwelling, a precursed serpent. Now, Scripture is clear about the serpent's true identity. John, the apostle, in writing Revelation, said, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, clearly referring to the serpent in the garden as Satan. Later, the apostle writes in Revelation 20, verse 2, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So this is Satan taking over the body of a serpent, and demons we know from other places in Scripture could do such a thing. Now, at this early time in creation, it wasn't startling or shocking to communicate with animals in some way. The serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts. This refers to his particular wisdom that he had as a demonic being, as an, in, uh, an intellectual being of superior capacity. Verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. This is because Satan was indwelling him. We even know as Paul characterizes the serpent in 2 Corinthians 11, the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. We're talking about Satan here. He has more names than anyone else in Scripture. New to Eve, but not new. His multiple titles betray his multifaceted approaches to causing harm to mankind and attacking the church. He's called Abaddon, accuser, the adversary, the angel of the bottomless pit, Apollyon, Beelzebub, Belial, the god of this age, a murderer, the prince of demons, the prince of the power of the air, ruler of darkness, ruler of this world, the wicked one, the evil one, the father of lies, an angel of light, Lucifer, the devil, Satan, and of course, the serpent of old. Satan is an angelic personage, a very powerful being as an angelic being, intellectually superior to human beings, and he has the benefit of added years, combining hundreds and thousands of years of accumulated knowledge. One of the most foolish things in the silliness of evangelicalism in the last 50 years is this movement where 
people were taught to speak to demons, cast them out. Speak to the devil, cast them out. We're not apostles and we're not Jesus. You go to Jesus and have Jesus cast them out. They are superior to us in intellect with much more experience. In Psalm 8, verse 5, For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have made mankind a little lower than the angels. Tozer labeled Satan, the devil is a better theologian than any of us, and he's a devil still. He's a personage in that he has locality. He cannot be everywhere. We shouldn't overestimate him. He can't be everywhere at any time. He's not omnipresent. He's not all-knowing. He's smarter than us, but he's not all-knowing. He's not omniscient. We should not overestimate him, but we should not underestimate him either. This is the devil meeting Eve at this moment. The Bible actually speaks quite often of angels. We learn that few works of human art do justice to their appearance and their attributes. We tend to portray angels the way we want them to look or imagine them. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters gives us some uh, thoughts to ponder about the appearance of angels so that we take out of our minds the images we normally see, especially in Renaissance art. Lewis said, I believe in angels, whether good or evil. This belief does not mean a belief in how they are represented in art and literature. Devils or demons are depicted with bat's wings, good angels with bird's wings, not because anyone holds that moral deterioration would likely turn feathers into membrane, but because most men like birds better than bats. Angels are beautiful and fearsome in appearance. To see an angel would be to see one of the most majestic of all God's creatures. So erase from your minds chubby little cherubs with harps floating around in the nursery wall. Erase from your mind the image of Cupid, the little roly-poly angel with a toy bow and arrow. Erase from your mind Satan as a little red man with a tail and a pitchfork. According to the Word of God, Satan is the most beautiful of all angelic beings. And as a personage, the devil is limited, but yet still very powerful as an angelic being. Satan is not God's opposite and equal in any sense whatsoever, completely inferior in every way, a creation. But Satan is powerful and should not be underestimated, and we are introduced first to him in the scriptures in the passage that we have before us. His actions in the garden, they sowed the seeds that continue to multiply over the years. At this time in the garden, the only enemy that mankind had was Satan. After this, now man's flesh is affected by the sin that entered, and then the world, with a bunch of other people who live in the flesh, also become our enemy. The devil, the flesh, and the world. So he is a legacy of powerful sin that has come from this one act that we read of here. And the sinful motivation of Satan should be clear. The bottom line is he wants glory robbed from God. He wants a piece of God's glory. He's welled up with pride. And he wants all of us to have pride like that too. And he wants to convince us that we are being robbed in some way by God. The God who created us and gave us all these good things said it's all very good. He wants to say it's not that good. Because he knows as we remove our devotion from him, glory, uh, at least in our mind and perspective, is taken from the Most High. And that's what Satan's goal is, to rob God of the glory that is due his name. So he strives to undo God's work, to make people turn away from God, instigate evil, and secure men's worship. He seeks to usurp 
the place of the Most High. Arthur Pink said it well. His chief aim is to get between the soul and God, to estrange man's heart from his maker and inspire confidence instead in himself. This is what prompts Martin Luther to say so wisely, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. The devil has many tactics. Here he possesses a serpent in order to tempt Eve to sin. So let's consider now the temptation that he employs in the second part of verse 1 down to verse 5. And you'll notice a timeless, tested tactic in verse 1. Look what it says in the middle of the verse. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say? This is time-tested and effective. This is a tactic that has worked over and over and over again. We know it's coming. We know we'll do it, but it works. So he keeps at it. These many millennia later, by way of an illustration to kind of bring home how this time-tested, consistent go-to of Satan is effective and continues to be effective. In 1996, a second-year pitcher started throwing a pitch that had never been seen quite like it before. Mariano Rivera, a projected starting pitcher at that time, was be, being converted into a middle reliever. One time while throwing catch with Ramiro Mendoza before a game, he noticed this ball do something unusual. He tried to capture what it was again and again, and he started to employ the same throw, but now with more velocity. Shortly after that, his signature pitch called the cut fastball, or the cutter, the Mo Cutter sometimes called, was in full effect by 1997, late in the year. It became almost the exclusive pitch of the greatest closer in baseball history. 19 years in the big leagues, 18 as a closer. He finished a regular season ERA of 2.21. That's after 19 years in the league. He still holds the most saved games in the major leagues with 652. And this is despite usually only pitching one inning in the games he played. He still amassed 1,200 strikeouts. One pitch over and over. The batter knew it was coming, but it still got him every time. Everyone knew he had the pitch. Everyone knew he used the pitch. But no one was ultimately able to conquer it in any ultimate sense. For lefties, the pitch came across the plate inside and cut even more drastically inside at the last second. Many broken bats. For righties, the pitch came like it was going to be a strike and then it would cut to the outside. Many strikeouts. For 18 of his 19 seasons, he used this pitch almost exclusively. Even when he lost some velocity near the age of 40, the cutter kept working and working, and working. Despite how one-dimensional it seemed, batters kept falling for it. The only thing better than his regular season ERA of 2.21 was his postseason ERA of 0.99. 42 playoff saves. Some guys never have that many in their careers in the regular season. First ballot Hall of Famer in 2019, and the first player in history to get all the votes. All with one pitch, the cut fastball, because the pitch worked. Mo Rivera is no devil. In fact, 
He's a strong believer in Christ. But the devil has a similar tactic with people, particularly believers. He's done this for millennia. We see it in this passage. The devil has many tools in his arsenal. Many things can trip us up, but the one he goes to over and over and over again, even institutionalizes, comes from the passage we just read. The devil's cut fastball is to make us doubt the clear word of God, to make us confused about what God's word actually says. He takes the times and he puts them in our heads before the word and he jumbles us around and then asks us, did God actually say, people don't think this, did God say that? People don't think that's true. Most people, come on people, did he really say what he appears to have said? It's the devil's cutter. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Derek Kidner said that this question that the devil asks here, did God actually say, it smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment somehow. It doesn't sound right to you, mankind, so maybe it's not really God's word. In every era, in various cultures across the world, there will be teachings in Scripture that challenge that given culture. We have the hot ones in our era. Scripture might challenge contemporary norms on marriage and sexuality, on the roles of men, women, and children. It could concern God's judgment in some way. It could concern God's standard of righteousness. Every era in every culture has something. And the devil's cut fastball is to plant a seed of doubt in the minds of people in order to challenge and ultimately discredit God's word so that glory could be robbed from God. That's what he wants. Did God actually say, the devil asks? You know, he's been doing this for millennia because it works. That's why it works. And all too often, all too often, he'll use religious voices to trip up the people of God with this question. Pastors who are supposed to be ministers of God's word no matter what, they'll serve Satan's purposes, essentially presenting portions of the Bible as if to say, did God really say, I know you're under pressure, everybody, about some things. I want you to come in. Let me let you off the hook. It's not actually what it says here. Did God actually say they've got a lot in common with Satan? Helping nobody. Our text, did God actually say, and look at what he refers to in this instance, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Did God actually say this? No, he didn't say this. We all know he didn't say this. What are you talking about here? It's so out there. It just, it strikes us. That's not even close to what he said. And so Eve starts to answer and interact now with this dialogue stream. God said for Adam and Eve not to eat of the one tree in the garden. He didn't say anything about any tree. And then furthermore, Eve responds by about not touching the tree. Eve's wrong in her answer too. We see what unfolds as this comes forth from this place. Now, perhaps for a moment, let's consider where Eve got her information. We don't know all these details, so I tread lightly on this. But Adam is the one who received the covenant of works, the prohibition against taking of that one tree. Eve was then created. So we can assume that Adam would give that information to Eve. Now, perhaps Adam says to Eve, don't touch that tree. We'll die if we touch that tree. I don't know where she gets her misinformation as she misreads it. But Adam would have been responsible at some level to, to relay this information. 
Now, let's look closely at what Eve says in her response to the devil, because this is important, foundational, in fact. First, notice how she minimizes God's, good, uh, God's goodness, His great generosity, by omitting, omitting just one word. We get a hint of this. Now, you remember what God says to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden in Genesis 2.16. You may eat of every tree of the garden. This whole garden is for you. Eat it all. Every tree, except the one. But every tree. You could never get to the end of your life and eat from every one of the trees, essentially. It's just so much for you to have. Eat of every tree. But look what the woman says as she's now confronted by the serpent. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Slight. But God's not quite as generous as he actually is. She omits every, in a way minimizing what God had given them. It demonstrates a perspective that lessens the generosity of God towards them. It's bent towards now looking at the prohibition, not the vast wealth of stuff that God's given that you can never exhaust. Now, more importantly, look at what happens with the other twist that happens in her understanding of Scripture, in her recitation of what the Lord has given as a command. Again, perhaps this is what she got from Adam. Verse 17 of chapter 2, God says to Adam, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you will die. If you eat from this particular tree, you will die. That's, that's ex- literally what he says. But in Genesis 3, verse 3, she says, but, adversative, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She gets God's word wrong, and the devil sees it, and the devil wastes no time to jump on her error. The devil's testing for this, no doubt. How well does she know God's will, the devil thinks? The fact that she is dialogue this far without rebuking the snake's references tells him all that he needs to know, that she's on the hook here. First, she minimizes God's word. Second, she adds to God's word, and the devil pounces. But the serpent said, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. The first doctrine that Satan goes after in the Bible is to deny God's judgment, to to deny God's right to judge, to deny the Creator's right to do whatever He wants. That's the first thing He goes. Because if He can numb that in you, He's got the rest. If you don't think that you really will stand the judgment of your Creator, then what else can you possibly do? Whatever you want. Perfect, is what Satan says. So He goes after judgment. You won't really die. That's not really going to happen. Come on. Look, it's right there. Have it. It's like the rest of it. Just have it. You're not going to, sh- you won't surely die. God's righteousness is not that righteous. No worries about cheating a little here. God's wrath against unrighteousness is not that severe because God's not that righteous. He doesn't say that, but that's exactly what he's aiming towards, and that's the glory of God he's looking to rob. You won't be judged. Just eat it. His threats are empty. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows, verse 5, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open like his, and you'll get to see the stuff he sees. He doesn't want you to see it. He's setting God up to be a, a killjoy. That God wants all the happiness for himself. He doesn't want you to have it. He knows if you take of this, that your eyes will be open, and you'll be like him. You'll be God, like God, knowing good and evil. That's what he's doing. He's just holding it back from you. He doesn't love you like you think he loves you. He's keeping something from you. 
the creator of all things, who says it's all very good, is portrayed as an adversary now to Eve. And Eve listens to the creature, not the creator. It's this, this basic progression or digression, as it were. Satan offers a question based on a perversion of God's word. Did God actually say? Eve then begins to question it herself as evidenced by her revisions of God's word or her misunderstanding of God's word or how it was given to her as erroneous in the first place or not complete. And then Satan is free to declare God's word as wrong at that moment, and he does. The main reason for weakness in the church of Christ is because we bought the lie did God actually say. It all falls out from there. We have to know the word, people of God. That's your pastor. You've got to know the word. Hide it in your heart that you might not sin against him. Kent Hughes said, ultimately, such minimizing, adding, and subtracting leaves us without the word and free-falling into temptation. That leads us to the fall itself. Look at verse 6 and verse 7. The fall into sin and its incalculable impact. There's no amount of words in the next two weeks when we go through the rest of the chapter that anything I could do could really bring the full breadth and width and depth of what's happened tragically because of this fall to mankind, to all of us. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she gave also some to her husband. And I want you to see this very closely. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam was with her the whole time. We know this because of this verse. Then also, every time Satan speaks in verses 1 through 5, when he says you, he's doing it in the plural. Adam is there, in the background, wherever he's at, but he's there. He's not far. She didn't have to go back uh, to the hut or wherever they lived and then look for him. Hey, I got this. You got to try this. He was with her. He was listening to this go on. It says in verse 6, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve was getting deceived by the devil while Adam watched it, and Adam analyzes it, and Adam decides to rebel against God. Adam watches, no doubt, to see, when she eats, will she really die? He's not deceived by what's happening. He knows what's happening. He knows what the Word of God is. He watches his wife go through this process, and he does nothing to stop it or correct it, and he waits, she eats, he does, she doesn't die, and then he eats. Now, we know this is the true angle on it because she's not the one who's blamed for the fall of mankind. Yes, she sinned, but under Adam's leadership, gets no protection from him, goes forward and does this thing and sins, and then he willingly does this sin after. And we know it's true because the New Testament writers make clear this. It says in 2 Corinthians from Paul, the serpent deceived Eve, but then when he writes to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Why did Adam seem to stand idly by? She took of its fruit. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She was deceived, but Adam sinned in utter rebellion. The blame is never placed squarely on the woman. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21, it says, For as by a man came death, for as in Adam all die. In Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. 
And so death spread to all men because all sin. In Adam, he represented all of us, Eve included. And death entered. And it begins with spiritual death at that moment, instantaneous spiritual death. And the physical decline and decay follow suit shortly thereafter. No, they didn't drop dead physically as whole body, soul, nexus people yet, but their soul died and now their body starts to follow suit. Everything changes immediately upon partaking of the fruit. Verse 7, look there with me. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Kidner says it well. The couple, now ill at ease with each other together, experience a foretaste of fallen human relations in general. And there's no road back in those immediate times at all, and not till ultimate times. It's that devastating as it unfolds relationally right there in their midst. Humankind goes from the pinnacle of innocence and intimacy together with each other and with God to the pit of guilt and estrangement from each other and from God. The full impact of this first sin is truly incalculable. And it's true what one author said. I think it's fair to say that the divine record of the fall is the only possible explanation of the present condition of the human race as we see it, as we observe it, as we live it. It affords the only adequate explanation for the universality of sin. Their eyes were now open to their fallen condition, to their guilt and to their shame, and it started to compound upon themselves. They begin to experience misery and suffering. They experience a sense of alienation, of not belonging, of being lost. They think that they can cover themselves with their own constructions, and it's silly to even consider. They tried to hide from God because they were now scared of him, terrified, in fact, from innocence and intimacy with God and with each other to guilt and estrangement. And there are two bookend verses for this passage, 2.25 and 3.7, are a poetic bookending to this tragedy that we read between. In verse 25, the height of the created order at that moment and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And as a result of this, we in our fallen state are truly fallen. We are faithless. We are rebellious. We are filled with pride. People are not generally good. If left to themselves, they will make things way worse. We can't fix ourselves. We can't get out of it. We'll never make it better. Oh, I know that's not popular, but how's popularity working for the state of human affairs? It's because they think, the world out there thinks they're good, that we keep getting worse. As a result, our only hope, and it's a great hope, it's a good hope, it's a sufficient hope, but our only hope only hope is the grace of God that sends a Redeemer. That's it. As it says in our catechism, the sinfulness of that estate wherein men and women fell consists of the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness that's gone now, and the corruption of his whole nature, every aspect of us is affected by this, which is commonly called original sin. Together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. 
But there's good news that I want to leave you with. God does send the second Adam. I know you know that, but I want you to put together how specific and careful and intentional God is about doing his work of redemption. You see how tight it fits with all of his purposes. God sends a second Adam to represent us. The first Adam fell, and we fell with him. So a second Adam must come, and the second Adam must do what the first Adam failed at as our representative. And then that second Adam has to do something else. Besides just succeeding in the covenant of works, he has to lay his life down to pay for the justice that we deserve. And so when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we have the covenant of works recapitulated with the second Adam. I want you to listen to this as I close. Matthew 4. This is the covenant of works, now the second Adam, put in the same place the first Adam was. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Sounds familiar. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, isn't just, just like him, thousands of years later, even more wisdom now, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We must rely on God. He's the glorious creator and sustainer. Rely on him. I won't follow what you tell me. I must go to God. All glory be to God. First answer. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Misconstruing Scripture again, throwing it at Jesus. But Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Two strikes. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you as if they're Satan's to give. All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. None of his glory will be stolen from you, Satan. All of it goes to him. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You know, it takes the work of the last Adam to bring home to us our full downfall with the first. It's a heavy message in Genesis 3. But you should always go from Genesis 3 to Matthew 4. And yes, Matthew 4 has something for us in the practical that we should know the word so when the word's misused, we can recognize it, no doubt. But that's a secondary application of Matthew 4. The reason Matthew 4 is there is to show us the second Adam undid what the first Adam did. And you, brothers and sisters, or if you're not a brother and sister yet, you need to be in the second Adam. You cannot remain in the first Adam. It leads nowhere but sin, death, hell, and the grave. That's where it goes. But in the second Adam, there is life, and life everlasting. John Milton in Paradise Lost said, Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe, with loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Let's close as I lead us in prayer. O oh Lord, your word is straightforward and exactly what we need. 
Let us not listen to the blinding, numbing word of a lost and fallen world that cannot stumble itself out into anything. Though the message of sin's entrance is hard, it is what we need to know in order to understand our plight and the plight of our fellow people. Father, once again, by your gracious hand, lead us to Christ afresh. Give us compassion for the many miseries of this earth, and please motivate and empower us to preach the good news of the second Adam, in whose name I pray. Amen. Let's respond by turning in our hymnals to 200.